0: to welcome those of you who are here and uh, those of you who are joining us via Facebook Live. Good morning to you as well. And this is part two of a series that we started last week called Didn't See It Coming. And this is from a a book series, or sorry, a book that just came out. Just let me get my notes here before I get lost. And uh, this is from a pastor who's just released this book Uh, of the same title his name is Carrie Newhoff so I make no apologies today I'm borrowing heavily from his book and I would highly recommend to you uh, that you get a copy Uh, this is a man who um, used to be a lawyer actually and he felt a call to ministry a couple of decades ago and uh, planted a church in Barry Ontario I believe it's Barry and uh, the church has done very very well in reaching non-christian people non-church people And he has a podcast that has millions and millions of followers in the whole leadership circles, Christian and non-Christian alike, and uh, came out with this book. And I thought, oh, my goodness, there is an awful lot of great information um, in here that people need. So I'm borrowing heavily on it. Uh, But also mixing a little bit of my stuff in it. But I would highly recommend that you go out and get it. And last week we talked about cynicism. So the idea here is that there's seven major challenges that everyone faces uh, but no one really expects. And you only see these things usually when it's too late. So when when your cynicism turns into such a a behavior and such a lifestyle that you realize, wow, I have no more faith, I have no more belief, I have no more trust, I don't trust people, I alienate people, uh, and my whole faith system is all blown to bits, Um, that's too late. You want to try and catch cynicism while you're cynical and not after some type of catastrophe. Today we'll talk about compromise and then next week, disconnection, irrelevance, pride, burnout, emptiness. And the problem with a lot of Christians is that we don't want to admit that we struggle with these things because the typical answer that we'll give in a church setting or what looks like a church setting, good morning, how are you? Oh, I'm great. Not good morning, how are you? Oh, I'm cynical. <laughs> good morning, how are you? Oh, well, I'm, I've compromised. Good morning, how are you? Well, I'm in depression and burnout. You know, we don't want to say that. We don't want to admit that. And so we're really good as Christian folks or church-going folks, whatever you want to call us, Lot. We're really good at concealing these things. And we can be, we can be an easy target um, for catastrophe as a result of these, he calls them seven challenges. Uh, there's probably more, but he lists seven, that no one expects, but everyone faces, all right? So today we're going to talk about compromise, and I want to ask you a question. How many of you have been to a job interview where you were being interviewed for a job? Raise your hand. Come on. It should be just about every single person in this room, just about. Even if you're you're retired or whatever, you remember going to your first job interview and how that felt. How many of you have ever been on the other side where you were interviewing somebody? I've been on both sides. Which side do you like? When you're interviewing or when you're being interviewed? How many of you you like being interviewed? Ah, one person, okay. How many of you you like, be, you like being the person doing the interview? You're, yeah, it's, well, because you have nothing to lose. You're in the, you're, you have the upper hand, you're in the position of power, right? Um, So usually when these job interviews, and I've done both, there's all kinds of formulas that people use. And I've noticed them, you know, you try and make a system, you're going to interview this person. So you're looking for some things. And usually the person who's giving the job interview really has no time to do it. And so they're looking for a, you know, goal. They're looking for the person who, they, they just, boom, they explode off the scene and they're better than all the other candidates. They want their job to be easy. And so I've heard of uh, one way of doing it. They call them the different C's that you're looking for. You're looking for character, looking for chemistry, looking for capacity. You're looking for competency. You know, we say, well, if we find all these things in the person, then maybe the person's a winner. Uh, but here's, here's the question that I have for you. Uh, in, in the job world, which trait do you think is going to lead to success? Is it you being competent or is it you having character? If you'll flip the slide there, Joyly, is it competency or character that's ultimately going to lead to success? So competency. So how competent is this person? Um, how how skilled is this person? How trained is this person? How well practiced and well versed is this person? Can this person do the job? Are they competent? Now, if you're giving an interview, you're looking for someone who can do the job. Usually, you're not looking at their personal life. You're not looking at their life outside of, the, you know, you don't care about their home life. You don't care about any of the, usually, you're looking for can the person do the job? Is the person competent or incompetent? Right? You want to seek competency. And so you ask all these questions, and you know, you'll come in, if you're the person being interviewed, you'll come in with your resume, with your CV, and you're trying to show that you have competency. Just a tip for you, those of you who are looking for jobs and doing resumes, one page. The person who likes doing the interview just wants one page. They put, put your best thing on the page. But if you come with a resume that's six pages long, that means there's a problem. The person giving the interview is going, oh, six pages long. They're trying to justify themselves and prove that they can do something. So just go with one page and put the best of yourself on that one page, just a tip for you, OK? In any case, usually we're looking for competency. Are we looking for character? Character could be defined as, well, who you are. Uh, what do you want to be remembered for? Which do you think is ultimately going to lead to success? How many of you think competency? No wrong answers. How many of you think competency? Wow, how many of you? Okay, a few of you. How many of you think character? Okay, a little few more of you. Which do you think it is? Well, I I would argue, as you probably know, that it's going to be character at the end of the day. Your ability to contribute to life. Your ability to make a difference, I would argue is ultimately going to determine your capacity and how much you can do and how much you will do. It's by the character that you have ultimately even beyond how skilled, how trained, how practiced you are for the job because We can test this, we can look around, and we can see people who are extremely competent. They are are the best of the best in terms of ability, but their character is found wanting. And when that happens, when there's a character problem, we call that compromise, when there's something wrong behind the professionalism and behind the skill set that the person obviously has, but there's something about their character that is flawed and that is compromised. They are not living up to who they claim to be or who they want to be. This is what compromise is. So a nice definition. When, you, when who you are is not who you had hoped to be. And when I say who you are, I'm not talking about a theological discussion about your identity in Christ, okay? I know I know the New Testament teaches that a Christian is a saint, and, and they're in Christ, and I know all that. I'm talking about how you live your life, what your values are, what your ethics are, who you are. If that doesn't match who you had hoped to be, then there's a compromise there and this ultimately is going to determine your success in life it's whether or not you have compromised in terms of your character let me give you a few examples Uh, did you know tomorrow is an election just saying I know we're all looking at American politics but you know tomorrow there's a very important election and the four people who want your votes are on the screen there's a few more of them, but they're, they're not on the screen. So you have, you know, Philippe Cuillard then uh, 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 JFL, uh, Jean-Francois Lise and Manon Massé and Francois Legault. And so what happens in these elections? What are we looking for? Are we looking for competency? Are we looking for character? Well, both. But what we tend to do, especially as the process moves forward we're about to vote is there any compromise that can be dug up about any of the candidates and so a tactic that I think uh uh, Francois Legault was the person who started it just last week he released his financial personal financial situation did you read this in the news Oh, you're following U.S. politics more. We'll get there in a second. So so what he did was he said, here is my personal financial situation. He released his 2017 income tax returns. And he said, here, I am transparent to the public. You will find no compromise in my personal financial situation. Do you see? I'd like to see if the rest of the candidates will do as I have done. Ha ha. And so, of course, the rest of them one by one released the details of their finances via their 2017 income tax return. Uh, Now, he happens to be the wealthiest dude uh, because he's the co founder of Air Transat. I'd like to be the co founder of Air Transat, it would make my tithe a lot bigger to this church, okay? But all of them did that. All of them follow suit because they're trying to say, we don't compromise either. So nice try, Mr. Legault, but we don't compromise either. But it's a question of compromise. And every time there's an election, especially in North American politics, it's what dirt can be dug up? Because all of them have a a seeming air of professionalism to them. So what can we find out about their character that will cast them in a bad light? We have a glaring example south of the border in the incredible events that happened this past week in Washington with the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court of the United States. Did any of you watch what happened? I was riveted watching the process there of the Senate Judiciary Committee and whether or not they would simply move his name to the floor of the whole Senate for a vote. Eventually, they did by one vote. Uh, But the question about this man is, has he compromised? So he claims to be this, you know, church-going Catholic guy, really squeaky clean, all of his life, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And of course, this, this lady, Christine Blousey Ford, uh, in the in the in the late hours, just before this whole movement to the floor uh, would take place, she uh, uh, made an allegation very very clear that she was sexually assaulted by this man at the age or uh, as a teenager. 36 years ago and the thing has created so much drama Uh, and it was a high drama situation where both of them testified this past week and it's a question of compromise and finally his name was passed for this initial thing where where the Senate Judiciary Committee said okay 11 votes to 10 His name moves on to the full Senate. But the one vote was kind of on a condition, if those of you who are watching it, it was, well, I will vote yay, yes, for now. But I want to see a one-week FBI investigation, which would be the seventh FBI investigation into this man, I want to see a one-week investigation into these allegations because clearly someone's telling the truth and someone's lying. They both can't be right, so nobody knows. They both seem very convincing. But did this man compromise, yes or no? Let's see what the FBI investigation will prove. And if there is an FBI investigation, then once again I will vote for him on the Senate floor. So everything went by party lines so far, but we'll see what happens. Everyone stay tuned. But it is a question of compromise. Has he compromised? Is who he really is what he claims to be? Or has he compromised in his character to a point that he should not be on the Supreme Court of the United States of America? Another example, south of the border. Do you know who this man is? He is now declared a dangerous sexual predator. Bill Cosby, who is shackled there and currently in prison in, I believe, the state of Pennsylvania uh, for drugging and, and sexually assaulting a Canadian woman. And he was found guilty and was finally charged and is now in jail at the age of 81, partially blind, and now officially labeled a dangerous sexual predator. Why? Because who he is, who he really is, and the way that he has lived his life and his essence behind the professionalism and behind—I mean, this man was was one of the most respected people in the entertainment industry in terms of stand-up comedians and entertainers. Any of you ever watched the Cosby Show? You're old enough to remember that show. The most popular show on television at the time, his image was he was America's dad, right? And now he's in prison. Why? Because of compromise. Compromise. Nobody wants to be, no one hopes to be a dangerous sexual predator, but this is what the truth has revealed that he is, and this is why he's going to prison. Final example, south of the border. So for the last two years, there's been an ongoing investigation as to whether or not he compromised and colluded with the Russians in some shape or form, involved them in the election process deliberately in order to win. This would be compromise, you see. And so now some would doubt his, his competency altogether, right? But the question is, can we nail him on compromise. And this is what's been going on for two years. So this, your your, the, your character and the degree to which you keep it and you hold it, this is going to determine ultimately your success in life. What do you want people to remember you for? Is it that you were competent or that you had character? Clearly, it should be that you had character. How does compromise happen? We have this idea in our heads that compromise is a one-time snap-of-the-finger thing. Oh, well, person got tempted in whatever area. The person, you know, they had a bad day. It was a bad moment. And their whole world fell apart as a result. I mean, it wasn't some kind of... It just took them by surprise. And, you know, they're really a good person. And, you know, they compromised because such and such. And can I just tell you that that's not how compromise happens. It is a, it is a slow and very deliberate and very gradual process that ultimately ends in a catastrophe. And I like the way that the author of this book terms it. Uh, we, we rent, we lease, and we eventually sell our soul to compromise. We go through a process. So first we start by renting. And renting, you know, usually if you rent, it's short term, right? It's, you can get out of it if it's a rental. And what we do in, when it comes to compromise is we say, well, it's, a, it's only one time. Nobody's looking. No one's going to see. Everybody does it. It's just one time. It's just one look. It's just one click on the mouse. It's just one thing stolen. Nobody's really going to see it, you know, and, and it's only one time. What harm is it going to do after all? This is a rental arrangement that we have in our minds. And so we, we do this rental thing to compromise. Uh, but then once we rent, we realize, hey, I got away with it the first time. So what's wrong with the second time? What's wrong with the second click of the mouse? What's wrong with, uh, you know, it was a look at the other woman, but now it's a conversation. It's not going to go any further right? Doesn't the Bible say, look, but don't touch somewhere? or No, that's in museums, right? So, you know, and we start to get into a bit of a lease where we're repeating the behavior a little bit, and we're, we're starting to say, well, you know, this may actually be justifiable, and, you know, I could take a little more money off the top. No one's going to see. I remember meeting a, a pastor who one of the churches that he pastored in, the treasurer embezzled hundreds and thousands of dollars from the church, hundreds and thousands over a period of many, many years. How did he do it? A dollar at a time, a little chunk at a time. And he eventually got caught, compromised. But you move from a rental to a lease, a little longer term, but you can still get out of it and then you sell out and then you buy it and then you then your commitment is there then your whole life is running around the compromise you have become a professional liar your whole life is organized around the compromise it's all operating around the compromise and it is filtered into every part of your life you it's a lease it's a it's a rent lease sell situation So we see hundreds, I think, of examples of this in the Bible, probably hundreds, uh, at least 100. And in particular, in the Old Testament, you're going to meet character after character, situation after situation, compromise, 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 one leader after another, one individual after another, and they all go through the same spiel. Uh, One of the most famous is of David king david and this is from second samuel in the old testament chapter 11 you can just read that chapter on your own and then the the chapter when he gets caught uh, by the prophet nathan in chapter 12 but david goes through this rent lease sell process so what happens this is um uh this is adultery this is cover-up this is conspiracy to commit murder He's, he's the king of Israel and you read in 2 Samuel chapter 11 in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. Of course, you have to go back into the context to see why. But David remained in Jerusalem. He's alone. He stayed back in this city. One evening, and again, this makes it look like, oh, this compromise has just taken me from nowhere. We will see upon closer investigation that's not true. One evening, David got up from his bed, and he walked around on the roof of the palace. And there, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful in the writer's mind here. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, wait a second, isn't this Bathsheba, the the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. And in parentheses there, it's rather important, she had purified herself from uncleanliness. I'll explain this in a minute. And then she went back home. And the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Uh-oh. So it looks like this was a one-time thing. It looks like this was a one-time affair. He looked at this woman. He had to have her and you know she's Bathsheba who so what who cares what her name is she becomes pregnant and then you're going to see this whole thing where he's going to try and erase the pregnancy I'll I'll get into it in a second but just just the first few verses let me explain the context to you Uh, this woman is the spouse of Uriah the Hittite Uriah is one of David's men it's one of David's fighting men he's a leader In David's whole political system and in his army and so he sees this woman and will give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he didn't know who she was at that point he's overcome with desire and lust for this woman he's thinking only about himself he is alone in the city of Jerusalem his men are out on the battlefield he has chosen to stay behind and he's probably chosen to stay behind not for very noble reasons because he's quite quick to go and fetch the woman when he sees her bathing. But then they say to him, this is your your employee's wife. It doesn't seem to stop David at all. It doesn't stop him in his tracks at all. He proceeds with the whole thing. And this woman, again, parentheses here, back in that day, in that culture, in that time, the, the, the Levitical law required, okay, the, the women in the room will, will get this, that after their, their monthly cycle, they had to go through a kind of a ceremonial bathing thing. You'll find this in the book of Leviticus. You say, why is that so strange? Well, it's that time, that culture, that place, and you have to go back in time to understand that that's what it was then. And so clearly, again, women who know biology and men who are smart, uh, you you will know that if you run the timing and you look at Leviticus and when she's supposed to do this, she would be, let's say, a candidate for getting pregnant at that time. It's a clue that's given to us here. And so, of course, she conceives and she gets pregnant. There's no indication that she refused to be with this man. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. He was very powerful, for sure. And probably she would have been intimidated by him. And probably she would have known that she was committing adultery. But maybe she was a little too intimidated. We're not sure. Maybe this is a Me Too movement, you know, 4,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago. We're not sure. But the deed was done. And she became pregnant, and he knew very well this is my colleague, my employee, one of my trusted men. This is his wife. And I would argue with you that he could care less. It made it even easier for him. He probably reasoned to himself, okay, this is Uriah. I'll find a way around this one. I know who Uriah is. He's not unknown to me. I know who he is. So David, I mean, he wants what he wants and it's all about David and he, he gets what he wants. But there's, uh, there's a problem she's expecting. And so what does David do? He works with another one of his colleagues, Joab, and he says, okay, go and bring me Uriah the Hittite, my employee, go and get him and bring him. And David says... Uh, And and David asked him how Joab was. He says, Uriah, tell me, how's Joab? He's, you know, one of your coworkers. And how's the battle going, Uriah? How's the war going? And David says to Uriah, you know what? You must be tired. Why don't you go to your house and wash your feet? Okay, This this is kind of a euphemism for you need to go home take a break, go home, go be with your family, go and be with your wife. What does he want to do? He wants to masquerade this pregnancy as being Uriah's the father. It's not me. It's Uriah. I can get away scot-free. And you know, if I, there's a way that I can get Uriah to be at home, to be with his wife, then I'll just mask this whole thing and I can say goodbye. Now, he has to, of course, bank on the fact that Bathsheba will keep her mouth closed. That Bathsheba won't tell the truth and say, I've had an affair. This is why I would argue there's probably a little bit of intimidation that's going on here, uh, but we can't prove it. In any case, he says, Uriah, go home. And so, Uriah leaves the palace And uh, he gets a gift from the king, but Uriah decides not to go home. He's a lot more noble than David. Uh, He's not looking out after his own interests. It says in verse 9, Uriah kept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go to his house. And David was told, Uriah didn't go home. Your plan didn't work, presumably by Joab. And he says, well, haven't you just, and he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home, Uriah? What's wrong with you? And Uriah, he says, listen, the Ark of the Covenant. The, like the ark, the thing that holds the Ten Commandments. And the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house? How could I go and eat and drink and lie with my wife in his language? As surely as, as you live, I will not do such a thing. I'm not going to look after my own interests. I'm looking at, look, the army's outside. The ark is exposed. I've got to go and be with them man, I've got to do my job. David didn't want to do his own job, apparently. And David says to him, all right, all right, all right. He's coming up with a plan B in his head. You can see his, his brain is cranking. And he says, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. And so Uriah says, all right, I'll stay one more day. And he gets an invitation to eat with King David, verse 13, and David gets him plastered. He gets him drunk. And so he's thinking, all right, Uriah is drunk. Now he'll go home. He's inebriated. And, of course, Uriah does not do that. In the evening, it says, back end of verse 13, in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat <laughs> in his inebriated state. Among his master's servants, he did not go home. He's a lot more nobler than selfish David is. And then in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. Joab is kind of a double agent here. He's working for David. He knows he knows what's going on. And he sends it to Uriah, and he says, this is how we're finding. Finally, going to end this problem. We're going to do so using violence and conspiracy to commit murder. Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is the fiercest, and then pull back and withdraw so that he will be struck down and he will die, all taken care of. I'll take his wife to be my wife. It's finished. It's over. I'm King David. I'm the man. And so it happens, Joab had the city under siege, this is the battle that they're fighting at the time, he puts Uriah, where he knew the strongest defenders were, the men of the city come out, fight against Joab, some of David's men in the army fell, moreover, verse 17, Uriah, the Hittite, died, ah, it's all, all solved. So Joab, Joab says, okay, we're going to send David the story of what happened on the battlefield. And he tells the messenger, he says, tell him, tell him uh, this person died and this person died and this person died. He's going to get really upset at that. But then at the end, tell him, by the way, Uriah is dead. And so this servant is so ignorant of the plan. He goes and he tells him, all oh, these people died. Uh, Abimelech, son of Jerubasheth, died. And this woman, this person died. There's all this violence. And also, your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead. Everything is fixed up. The plan is sealed. And he's going to go. He's going to, verse 27, after the time of mourning was over because Uriah's wife was mourning that her husband was dead, David had brought her to his house. She became his wife, bore him a son. But the thing David had done, this compromise, had displeased the Lord. And so he gets confronted by Nathan the prophet. And Nathan the prophet tells him his story. He says, let me tell you a little story. It's an allegory. He says, you got these two guys. One of them is, is really wealthy, has all this livestock. And you got this other guy, he's really poor. And all he has is a little baby lamb. And he treats this little baby lamb like his daughter, like his, like his only child. He treats the little baby like a human. You know, like 21st century dog owners treat their dogs. Any of you? own dogs treat them like humans yes well even better than that he, he treats this little baby lamb like his own little little child and there's a there's a guest in town and the guest comes in and he wants something to eat and so this man who has all this power all this wealth all this livestock instead of giving one of his animals to to you know be the meal he goes and he takes... The guy's little lamb, the little baby lamb, he takes the lamb from the guy who had one little baby lamb. And that's the meal for the night. And so, what do you think of this, David? And (laughs) the Bible says David is burned with anger. He says, What he did, what. that person should die he should lose his life for that that's so unfair that's so unjust that's so unethical that's so wrong that's such a compromise what he did what a scoundrel i'm burning with anger that guy should lose his life and nathan says to him uh excuse me you are that guy (laughs) you're that guy do you understand what i'm and david's he's done he's caught in the compromise FBI investigation not needed the prophet caught him in his own action compromise he rented he leased he sold out and you watch and you look at his God tells him you are gonna have so much trouble you did it in secret but I'm gonna have your kids do it in broad daylight there's going to be so much trouble in your in your future and in your family's future. I'm going to punish you for what you have done, David. You're the king and you did this horrible thing. There's going to be trouble, trouble, trouble. Now, context, 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 right? But this is what happened in David's life. You see his, his, his first son is struck down and taken. I mean, you see all kinds of problems with his kids after. It, it runs down even to Solomon. And you see Solomon's bad choices with women that lead to the split in the kingdom. I mean, it's just disaster after disaster because of this compromise that he allowed into his life. And he goes through all these signs, lease, buy, sell. Um, So let me give you them in a little more of a practical way. How can you know when you are compromising? And you'll see David fell into, into these four. Number one, there is a growing gap between your public life and your private life. Growing gap. So what is David doing in Jerusalem? He's not like Uriah, who's out there in the battlefield. And I mean, and even if he saw the woman and he's tempted by the woman, like, is he not thinking of God? Is he not thinking of the fact that the ark is out in the open and his men are in battle? Like, what's he doing staying behind in Jerusalem? He's staying behind for his own interests. He wants to, he's thinking about himself is what he's doing, and this is why he lets the chain go so, so, so far, and he doesn't stop anything. There's a gap between his private life and his public life. Who he's showing people he is and who he really is are two completely different things. There's a gap. There should not be a gap like that. So you should be able to be the same person in private that you are in public, the same. There shouldn't be this disparity and this gap where you're, you're acting out in front of people, but who you really are is something completely different. If you're acting, if you're putting a mask on when you're outside with people and you're in the public, there's a problem and you need to deal with that mask. Number two, you are hiding things find a way well i won't tell my wife that she doesn't need to know i won't tell the boss that he doesn't need to know why do they i know they don't that's none of their business and you find a way to compartmentalize and hide little things and keep them hidden and you have little hiding places Uh, i just need to tell you like compromise is not something that's reserved for the rich and famous and the the people who are politicians and all that. It happens in our own daily lives all the time. We're challenged as to whether or not we're going to compromise. I have seen it so many times in the lives of Christians and non-Christians, but especially Christians, regardless of who they are in life. I've seen it in the lives of pastors. I've seen it in the lives of people who volunteer in churches, plural, not just one church, multiple churches. I've seen it over and over and over again, and it always follows the same process. You start hiding things. There's a growing gap between your public and your private life. I remember dealing with one situation uh, where there was, and I've dealt with a few of them, where there were affairs going on, and man, this guy, he managed to hide it in such a way that it was, it was like nobody saw it. It was so well hidden, so well buried. He had so many ways out, and it was incredible, the complexity to hiding the thing, but he was hiding, and eventually he got caught. Number three, you justify bad actions and bad decisions. It's a whole lot easier to judge other people than it is to judge your own self. Why? Because when we judge other people, we judge their actions, rightly so. But when we, ju- when we judge ourselves, we judge our motives. We say, well, you know, my motive was a good motive. It, the, the action maybe didn't turn out so well, but, but my motive, I was justified to do what I did and You know, I mean, I worked for this company for for years and years and years. I mean, they owe me. I saved this company. I did this and this and this for this company, and they owe me. I'm justified for stealing this money. They owe me. Or, you know, my spouse did this this and this and this and this and this, and therefore I'm justified in cheating on my spouse. And we we justify ourselves because we say, well, my motives were because of, because of, because of. But this other person here, well, we judge them by their actions. (laughs) And we we, we don't judge ourselves by our actions because it's a lot more difficult. When we start justifying our actions and our bad decisions, compromise, 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 your life has become all about you. It was all about David. It was all about his power. It was all about his own selfish desires. It was all about him covering up. It was all about him. It's a, he's like, I don't care. Throw the guy out in the battlefield and let him. I'm, I'm King David. Do you know who I am? I can have whatever I want, whenever I want. I am the king of Israel, and God <laughs> is with me. When you start using God for your compromise, like, that's you're really, really in serious trouble, but this is what people do. And I have seen it. I have seen people literally say, God this and God that and God is helping me to make this decision. And they cannot see in the mirror. Hello, do you not see that your decision is sin? Well, no, because you're at a point where you're justifying everything and everything is about me, myself, and I, you, 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 the, the unholy trinity, as some people call it, okay? This is how you know that you're in a bad way, you're in a compromised situation, you're in big, big trouble at this point. So how do you fix it? How do you get out of it? Thank God that the Bible is a book about redemption. We sang about it, you know, a billion, you can make a billion mistakes, and if you come to God and you come to God in repentance, God can redeem stuff and he can, he can put stuff back together. But there is a road of change that you have to take, a little passage that may help you from, from the Beatitudes, actually, as it's called in Matthew chapter 7. This is the words of Jesus. It's kind of tucked in this very, very long sermon. And this is what he says, enter through the narrow gate. We always think about this as a salvation uh, passage, and it's not that it isn't, but it's also a passage about discipleship and change. Enter through the narrow gate. Eh, It's narrow for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. It's easy to compromise. It's a wide road. It's a common road. It's wide. It's an easy road to get on. If you want to get on the road of compromise, you will see that road. It's very wide. It's very obvious. But narrow is the gate. Narrow, it's small. It's narrow, the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So you can compromise, and you can be like everybody else. Or you can choose the narrow road that leads to life. It's not just a salvation verse. It's a verse about transformation. It's a verse about discipleship. Let me give you four things to do uh, before we finish today. Number one, work twice as hard on your character than your competency. So we say, well, I'll go to a conference, I'll go to this and this, I'll read this book and training, 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 I'll get this PhD, I'll get this name, little letters after my name, and that shows how competent I am. And that's good, that's all good. But meanwhile, you don't do any work on your character. And then you run into a compromised situation and you didn't see it coming. Why not work twice as hard on your character than on your competency and put your character through a test. Say, how am I doing in terms of my character? And start thinking about it more than you think about your competency. Number two, take responsibility. It's easy. How many of you are married? Put your hand up. I did Yeah, I know you're married. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he said, oh, yeah, I'm married. Yeah. So, so how many of you know there's a space between the two of you? Is that we can talk after? I'm just ki- I know you too. I'm just kidding. So how many of you know in marriage when you have an argument, it's so easy. It's so easy to just blame your spouse. I mean, you know, you could find a whole bunch of things wrong with your spouse. We're having a fight. She did this. She, 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 she's got this, 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 this. These are all the things that are wrong with my spouse. He's got, na, 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 na. These are all the things that are wrong with him. These are all the things that are wrong with her. What about what's wrong with you? <laughs> That's called taking responsibility. We are in this quarrel, and here is my responsibility in this quarrel. Here's my responsibility. Here's my issue, my my, my problem. My wife is cueing me to move more to the center. Here, you know. Okay, okay. So, in any case, that's for the Facebook Live. Um, um, yes, what was I saying? That was a really funny joke. None of you were laughing. She was just telling me. Didn't you get the timing was perfect? So, there he got it. The timing was absolutely perfect. We're always looking for the problem in somebody else instead of taking responsibility for our own our own actions. Isn't it, isn't it more difficult? But it's again, it's a narrow road, the narrow road of change. Listen, just a, a marital tip for you. You will never, ever, I don't care how long you've been married, you will never, ever succeed in changing your spouse. Give up now. You will never succeed. You know who you can change? Change yourself. Work on yourself. Work on your character. Don't you try and change that spouse of yours. You're going to end up in the loony bin trying to do that. Some of you have been there and back already. (laughs) You, You know what I'm talking about. Take responsibility number three. Make your talk match your walk. I remember working with a guy, and he used to say things, and half the things that he said were lies. He was as greasy as, I, I mean, he, everything that he said was a lie. So, and his favorite line was, I'll look into it. Whenever he said, I'll look into it, that was translated as being, it will never be done as long as I'm alive. I'll look into it, he would say. I mean, there are some people who say that 60% of the things that are said in a 10-minute conversation with someone are lies. (laughs) I mean, just inspect yourself. How often do I lie in one day? Even if it's a a little white lie. I don't know why we call it a white lie and not a red lie. But anyway, how many times do you lie in one day? What if you actually were to say the truth about what you're really going to do and not do? That would probably change what you choose to do and not do, wouldn't it? <laughs> if you actually lined up what you say with what you do, if the two, if there was no disparity, then there would be, oh wow, that would change my life. Just, just in terms of transparency, a tip for you. Um, if you have, you have electronics, just as an example, phones, uh, tablets, devices, okay, all of my devices, my wife and my daughter know all the passwords. I can't hide anything, even if I tried. I'd be too stupid I mean, it would be too much to try. I couldn't do it even if I wanted to. They know every password. They know all that they can go. They can look in my wallet. They can look at my email. They can look at my any time of day. It doesn't matter. There's nothing hidden. It's the same behind the scenes as it is in front of the scenes. It's all the same. There's Nobody has computers in their rooms in our house. Everything is wide open, wide, wide, wide open. It's all transparent. There's nothing, nothing hidden. I sleep very well at night, very well, because I don't have to work at hiding things. And I don't have the energy to hide things. Make your talk, match your walk. And number four, put yourself first when it comes to personal growth. So a lot of people who fall into these situations of compromise, it's because they start out, you know, they really want to do, do well And so their self and their own personal life and their own character and all that stuff, forget about that. I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Just do other things. Get busy, get busy, get busy. Work, improve, get better, get higher in the company, get better grades, et cetera, et cetera. No work on the character. Don't care about the character. Everything's fine, everything's fine. Then they start compromising, and it just keeps going, going, going like a snowball. You know when you travel by plane? Every time you go on the flight, what do they tell you? You have the person who stands in the front, and he or she says, in the event that you lose oxygen, the masks will come down. Yes, do you know the... And when the mask comes down, if you have children or people who you are caring for, put the mask on them first. No, put the mask on you first. And then you'll be able to put the mask on them. In other words, what is the person saying? Care for yourself first because you won't be any good to anybody else if you're out cold. Put your oxygen on first. And we need to do that with our character. Where we're saying, okay, my personal growth comes first. So, you know, my growth. As a Christ follower, my, my engagement in the Bible, my engagement in prayer, my, my being part of a church, my, my physical health, what I eat, how I sleep, all these things, these things come first because that's me putting the mask on first. I've got to look after myself if I don't want to compromise and leave a legacy behind of compromise. Where all people are able to talk about at my funeral is, well, they were very skilled. They were very competent. I've been to funerals like that. That's because the people who come can't find anything good to talk about when it comes to their character. And that's what you want to leave behind is godly character, not just all of your competencies, all right? So work twice as hard on your character. Take responsibility. Make your talk Match your walk and put yourself first when it comes to personal growth and you will avoid the monster of compromise.